Hi everyone and welcome back to Series 2 of Espresso Briefing, the business book club for the perennially time poor. If you're an executive or an HR leader or a professional whose appetite for learning about culture and performance is sadly outweighed by your lack of free time, then this is the place for you. This isn't a book review, it's more of a chance to create a rich conversation with leaders and deep thinkers that we admire. They bring us their favourite books, we connect the book's insights to their and our own experience, and you get ideas to transform your career and your organisation. So if that sounds like a rich brew to you, do keep listening. So yet again, it's espresso briefing time. And this time, this time we have the irrepressible, the indefatigable and the just generally highly impressive Alex Barr with us. Hey, Alex. <laughs> hey, guys. How are you doing? That's it's a hell of an intro. <laughs> it's you know what? all downhill from here. <laughs> Let's make sure it's not for the listener. Um, so we've got Alex, and we'll talk more about Alex in a moment. We've obviously, or as always, got the um, highly uh, interesting, um, imperative, and another either I can't think of at the moment, James Cook. Hey, James. That was a different introduction. I'm cool with that. That's fine. That's, that's <laughs> well, not the same. I, do you know what? I got rid of all my eyes early. I'm you so did, sorry yeah. about that. Um, so Alex, Alex is the, the executive chairman of Third Bounce, and Alex is somebody that I've known for some time as just the doyen, oh, I'm coming out with them today, aren't I? The doyen of sales. And anytime, Alex, I think about you, I just think about this huge sales energy. Um, but but it comes naturally, it's organically, because the other thing that's always highly impressed me about you is just a complete fascination with people, a curiosity in people. Am I right? Am I right in thinking that? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. The human dynamic. Love that. Yeah. Yeah. And and I think this book you brought us today, which which is uh, Matthew Said's Bounce. And again, it's a book I've been aware of. I I listened to Matthew Said on numerous interviews and his own uh, podcast and a really fascinating character. And again, shame to say I've never read any of his books. So this is a fabulous opportunity to learn more about the man himself and his uh, thought leadership. What's what's the big attraction for you overall? If you were to summarise what you love about this book, Alex, what is it? Uh, I tripped over it. It was um, it was recommended to me, and I, I I read it and I just thought, oh yeah, that that's what I've been thinking for ages, but it was never kind of didn't quite have the language to summarise it. Um, so uh, background to this, uh, I, I spent a lot of time in tech and uh, in and around law firms. Um, and in those worlds, you have hugely bright, really capable people, um, yet they would refer to some people having the gift of the gab or this idea that being commercially aware, having sales skills, you know, you, you either you either had it or you didn't. And that that was that was the end of it. Uh, and I always kind of sat there and thought that can't be true because I'm, I'm definitely not the bright, brightest guy in the room. Um, so, you know, this, this, this can't be true, but I read this book and it, and it just summarized all of that stuff really, really beautifully and made me sort of sit there and think, well, okay, so let's take the premise in this book and what would that look like as a business? Um, and then a few years later, yeah, I, I was in a position where I could kind of execute that. Yeah. Fantastic. Uh, James, are you, are you aware of Matthew Said? Yeah, I've actually read this, but um, it was a very long time ago, so I'm quite looking forward to getting into the book again. Um, so I have, I am aware of it. I'm aware of some of his podcasts and stuff, um, and I like the way he thinks. And I, I like what this book does is it 
it's a book that says that it's it's summarized by the Henry Ford quote: "Whether you believe you can or you can't, you're right." And I like the way he puts things to show. No, it's not. It's not you can or you can't. It's if you do the work, then you can. Um, and so I like the I like the premise of it as well. It's interesting. So it sounds like there's a theme of learned brilliance. Yeah, and what I notice about the the industries that you you were, were and are in, Alex, I'm I'm pretty familiar with them as well. And there's lots of really bright people, lots of people who want to do their very very best. And is it fair to say some fixed mindsets? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I think this book is great for that world. Yeah, it's an old thing. There's a there's a real thing, and I think it becomes self fulfilling that people who uh, are experts have knowledge, you know, a depth of knowledge on one particular topic. They like being an expert. I don't really like doing things that they're not an expert in. Uh, and then you add, uh, you know, regulatory sort of stuff on top of that um, and professional standards, and it becomes just piled on and piled on and piled on. And then what you end up with entire organizations where there's a handful of people that are salesy. You know, you normally call them directors or owners, just just by the fact that they are salesy, so they tend to sort of float to the top. Um, and actually, all of that stuff is just codswallop. This is this stuff is really easy. It's not aggressive. It's not tricking people. It's just being a good human being and just asking the right questions. Um, codswallop being a technical term, obviously. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> much, it's much better than the word I would normally use. Um, <laughs> but of course, this is a family show, of course, at all times. <laughs> No, it's not always been that family day. Well, no, no, that's that's very right. yeah. Maybe a sort of if the family was the Osbournes. Yeah, I think we're fine. <laughs> we can All right then. Sort of if you want. <laughs> so, uh, theme number one: natural born talent stops us being better. Tell us more about that one. So, um, natural born talent. Just just to premise this: so genetics has an impact in some areas. If you want to be a, an Olympic rower, for example, unless you're six foot four, six foot five, you, you physically don't have the leverage to do it. I'm not saying you can't be a good rower, I'm not saying you can't be a great rower. If you want to win gold, you've got to be a big unit. So side is definitely not saying that. But what he is saying is actually there's so much in this life that, that we can develop. Um, the idea that we can't do it today, therefore we can never do, never do it, is is an utter myth. So collectively, we'll, we all tell ourselves these stories about ourselves. I'm, it's the growth mindset stuff that I know you love. Um, you know, I'm no good at languages. Well, what do you really mean by that? You meant that you didn't do well at school the way school taught French. Well, are you the same now as you were when you were 14? No. Do they teach French in the same way they taught it? you know, 20, 30 years ago, or five years ago in your case. Um, uh, you know, absolutely no. So so we tell ourselves these stories. So the idea that I'm not good at, or it is just complete and utter rubbish. And in terms of sort of relating that to your own experience, Alex, where, where has that been most profoundly in your sort of experience of yourself? Oh, um, so I'm, I found out that I, I was massively dyslexic, but not until I was 32, 33. I've got... My, my dad was a, a teacher, my mum was a teacher, my grandfather was a headmaster, and nobody spotted it. So I went through school either being naturally really good at something, 
or being absolutely useless and feeling incredibly thick and never really joining the dots on why that might be. So at school, it, it was either I was, I was kind of just, you know, you know, pretty bright but lazy, which was, you know, at the time, probably not a million miles away from the truth, but there were fundamental. So things like I didn't learn the alphabet until I was 21, 22, and, you know, I just, just couldn't do it. It just was so processes, things like that, um, I really struggled with. And how did that impact on you? I mean, what were you aware of the impact on your sort of self-esteem or self-regard? Oh, there, there was a whole bunch of stuff where I, I just felt absolutely thick. Um, and I, I remember at primary school, secondary school, there were big chunks of that where there was a thing being discussed and I just thought, I don't even know where to begin thinking about that. So I'm just going to stare out the window or muck about or whatever. Um, uh, at the time, because I'm very old, dyslexia was kind of not really a thing in schools. It kind of, you know, it wasn't really sort of floating around much as an idea. Um, and yeah, it... it um, so that echoed all the way through in what I thought about learning, structured learning, developing skills, all that kind of sort of stuff. Uh, it really created a big barrier uh, to me. So, um, uh, yeah, I, I, I actually sort of picked it up because I was doing a lot of martial arts, uh, taekwondo, and I got up to a reasonable level. But to go up the belts, you need to have, you need to be able to remember patterns of movements so you can demonstrate your skills. It's like a, almost like I said, a, ballet or a dance thing um so and i couldn't remember them in order um and i had world-class coaches literally they, they they taught at the top of my street i tripped over them so you know one guy uh, dr dave cook now now runs the entire i think it's the scandinavian taekwondo olympic program um so hugely talented coaches but they couldn't get that stuff into my thick skull and i kind of all of a sudden pat back and that's and I sat back and thought, there's a whole bunch of other stuff that I've really struggled with. Why is that? So, yeah, went down that rabbit hole and came out and went, oh, yeah, dyslexia. So I'm actually maybe, maybe I'm not broken. I just need to do stuff differently and learn it in a different way. And so sort of understand this about yourself. How did you take this into your business career? Uh, you know, did, did that idea of your natural born talent, did you find yourself just focusing in certain areas in business and leaving other areas alone? and arresting your development? Oh, absolutely, yeah, absolutely. Think things like learning how to use a CRM system when we first started playing around with those, you know, to do to do, to achieve X, follow this path. If, if I didn't have that written down, I had absolutely no chance. So as a consequence, my, my, my shortcut for that, uh, there's a very nice lady called Karen, um, who uh, we worked out through Richard Gig because he was my boss at the time, so we all know. Karen would ring me up on a Friday afternoon wherever I was, and she would download the things out of my head and she would put them in CRM for me because we reached a conclusion that I probably wasn't going to type it in myself. So, so that was our sort of shortcut around my failing or my, how I saw my failing to learn how to use the CRM system properly. Um, that as a system worked really nicely. Kind of a nice chat with Karen. Everybody got the data they needed. Um, but the impact on from that was I had that kind of mindset where either I was gifted at something or I just couldn't do it at all. And that, that's quite an unhealthy kind of mindset to go through life with. There's just stuff that you just are too thick to do. I'll, I'll focus in that area without all my brilliance is where I get all my reward and ignore all of that. James, have you, have you seen that in your clients, people you've worked with or even in yourself perhaps? 
Yeah, yeah, both. So as as Alex was talking, I my my version of that at school was maths. And I tell this story at the beginning of the commercial confidence uh, programs that I do for people. And that's basically sales for people who don't know how to sell or think they can't sell. So I'll start with the story of um, maths. And so I believed I wasn't good at maths. So I didn't try very hard at maths. So I wasn't very good at maths. And then, and, and so you see the cycle developing. And so it's the mindset that begets the behavior. When I got into the world of business and sales, I mean, you still don't want me doing your trigonometry homework, but I can do arithmetic and that stuff, sales maths pretty quickly now. And now I know that I'm good at maths. And so I'm good at maths because I do the maths. And so that was, that, that was how that played out. And then with sales was, if you asked me 10 years ago, I couldn't sell, can't sell. And then the company I was in at the time, which was a startup, was not doing very well. So then the, the mindset narrative was, oh, I need to sell. So I went and did it really badly until I started not doing it so badly. And it wasn't so much of, I wasn't, I don't think I was as aware as, as Alex was about, oh, hold on, there's things I'm good at, things I'm not. What's that about? It was never that. It was literally, oh, I need to, you know, have an income. So I need to do this and I just need to keep doing it. And what? What I have is a sort of a almost sort of um, self-punishing discipline. Like I'll do, if I need to do something, I'll do it, whether I feel particularly great about it or not. And so through that, then got better at it. Um, and so the mindset shifted as a result of it. And, and then as far as inclined, yeah, I mean, that's kind of a part of the work I do. The question I always ask is what holds you back from? And there's a quote, and I can't remember who it's from. Maybe you guys can help me out. Um, is it's not what we are that holds us back; it's what we think we're not. And I'm always really intrigued by the what we think we're not part of the equation um, in sales, leadership, culture, whatever it might be. Um, so yeah, I, I'm I fully resonate with what Alex has said. It's a great. Uh, I had a great conversation with um, Steve Cram, a middle distance runner. And this was before the London Olympics. Um, so, you know, he was a, you know, godlike middle distance runner, um, you know, uh, absolutely amazing human being. Um, but he told me this story, he sort of said, actually, he said, at various points in my career, um, you know, not only was I not the best runner in the country, I wasn't the best runner in the county, I wasn't even the best runner at school, I wasn't even the best runner in my class. And you, the moment, you sort of sit there and go, hang on, how, how, does, how, does, how does that work then? Uh, and he sort of pulled it back and he, uh, he told me this story about how one day, I think it was his budgie or his hamster died uh, when he was about seven or eight. Um, and he rang his coach up and he was really upset. Um, and they had this conversation that was along the lines of, what do you think your competition would do in these circumstances? They'd probably not go to training. What are you going to do? So he made the decision that actually he was going to go and train on that day that his his beloved pet, Fluffy or whatever that was called, um, had died. Um, and you know that links through all through through to all the kind of marginal gains stuff, but that kind of mindset of that you've just described, i.e., that sheer bloody mindedness of I don't like this thing that I'm going to keep doing it anyway, whether that's in you, whether it's to get one up on the competition. Um, I find that fascinating. I, I found out after after I had that conversation that there's various other sports people who've got similar stories, um, where they all they all believe that they're the only one training on Christmas Day, but actually, <laughs> it's probably quite a few of them doing it.
Will Smith in his I read his autobiography recently and he would he went through a phase of that he would abstain from Christmas dinner and he'd be out training because he went all right well if I like that's at least eight hours of an eight hour day more than everyone else while he was on his mission to be the biggest uh, movie star in the world so there's that story rings through I'm thinking of um, Michael Jordan his relentless competitiveness he wasn't the best basketball player at school um, and his brother was better than him when they were kids and it was just him wanting to beat his brother at the beginning and then it was the and we're going to talk about this in in your second theme in a minute so i don't want to i don't want to take us there too quickly but that it's it's the competitiveness that got him there as much as anything else i suppose one thing i'm thinking about if we're relating this back to the business world and and sales feels to me like the obvious thing to relate it to and i say that because it's always seemed to me like this strange arcane mystical thing there are these people in the world of which you know you two are definitely part of that community who are just brilliant at it and then there's other people like me who need to do it because we've chosen to be self-employed but with no any degree of acumen and, and obviously with a relentless amount of self-doubt and so if I'm thinking about this idea, natural-born talent stops us being better, I'm also thinking, does the reverse hold true? I perceive I'm no good at that, so what's the point in trying because I'm just no good at that? And then you don't go on. And, I've, and I've, I've said over the years to many people, not so much anymore, to be honest, but certainly throughout my 30s and throughout a big chunk of my 40s, I can't sell. I'm not a salesperson. I shouldn't be doing this. So... For people who are stuck in that kind of loop, Alex, what do you think the, the key learning of, of this particular aspect of the book gives you? Oh, I, I, have a, I have a client. Uh, he's a mate. He, he's a lovely, lovely guy. He's got an amazing tech business, genuinely stunning. It's like sort of tripping over Mr. Hewlett and Mr. Packard when they were walking out of their garage. Just, just awesome. Um, I sat in on some of his uh, sales calls, so big enterprise class deals, big, big, chunky stuff. Um, and uh, on every call, he would say, just so you know, I'm just an accountant. So, you know, when it comes to following this stuff up or all that kind of sort of stuff, I, 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 don't, I don't do any of that. You know, that's not me. I'm just an accountant. So, so you just have to bear with me. And the moment you unpick that and kind of go, no, no, you're a really successful tech entrepreneur. But in his head, he was just an accountant. In his head, he couldn't have commercial. He was the wrong person um, to have commercial conversations, to have sales conversations, because in his head, he was just an accountant. Actually explicitly putting that label on it as, as an apology. And you sit there and kind of go, that's crazy. That's just crazy. But actually, the moment you unpick some of these, uh, some of these this mindset and these behaviors, and you start looking at it through uh, process, you start looking at it through skills, i.e. pieces of language that you, you can use and when, when you want when to use it, um, you know, emotional awareness, all of that body language awareness, all of that kind of good stuff. And you flip that into the world of his mindset. If we can actually crack that mindset of just an accountant, how about, how about you're an entrepreneur who's going to help some work out if they should buy from you? And actually, the moment you flip it into that, into just a slightly different set of language, the questions you ask, how you engage with someone on a human level, completely changes. So if you were dealing, and I'll ask this question to both of you, if you're dealing with someone or trying to train somebody 
to be better at sales? Is it almost taking the word sales out of the equation and saying, that's not the focus of it. It's something different. You or me, Alex, because... <laughs> Oh, this is fascinating. I, I, I'm genuinely torn by this. Uh, if I'm doing something for a law firm, one of the first things I have to do is unpick that. Because most people in the room, when they hear sales, um, literally, uh, almost every time I've gone into a law firm, there'll be a couple of people in the room who said, I didn't train for seven years to be a salesman. Why am I doing this thing that's related to sales? So you have to unpick all that and what do you, what springs to mind and you hear stuff like Arthur Daly, tricking people, double glazing. And that's what a lot of people hear when they think it's sort of sales. And actually the, you, you then connect that through with euphemisms like business development, commercial and all that kind of stuff. You say, well, what, what do you, well, you already do this, don't you? Because have you helped a client work out if they need, if they need you or not? Yeah, do that every day. Well, why don't we just work on that then? Because it's exactly the same thing. Absolutely no difference between it. So I don't, I purposely, so I work for a law team now and, and um, I don't take the word sales out of it. And I sort of deliberately don't because, but it's the perception, it's the meaning of it. So it's all right, well, what, it, and, it, and it's as you're saying, Alex, first of all, it's what is, what is sales? And then you, you get why it's being aggressive and it's that and it's that and I'm not an aggressive person. I don't want to be aggressive. Like, All right, cool, good, because that's that's good. Because if you want to be aggressive, you're not going to be very good at sales, at least not consistently good. Anyone can sell anything one time by being aggressive, but we're looking for a more consistent career. But I go, so perspective is everything. So first, um, so David, it would be identity. I can't sell. I am a person who's not a salesperson. All right, well, let's talk about that then. Because, and we're, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to James Clear's um, Atomic Habits book, and I love his analogy about habit formation. It's about casting votes for identities. So he goes, rather than go, right, I need to go to the gym three times a week, but secretly in your head, it's still, I'm not a person who goes to the gym. That's the block. So we've got to change that. So instead you go, all right, well, what would a person who is fit do? They go to the gym. So I am someone who works out is different from, I need to go to the gym however many times a week. And you're casting votes for that identity. So yeah, you're sometimes going to just not bother and go and have a pizza instead. That's one vote. That's not the game. That's not the election. And so you need to be casting more votes. And so it's, it's first of all, it's, all right, let's talk about why you're not a salesperson. What does that mean? Um, because I'm not an aggressive person. All right, cool. Well, that's cool. Now let's look at what is sales and give, I, I'll, I'll get them to figure it out and, and come to some sort of conclusion or I'll offer a more useful definition. Um, but then if it's business owners, or actually lawyers are, lawyers are a useful example, but I'll go business owners for a second. I'll, I'll go, all right, cool. Well, um, if you don't sell, you're not going to have a business. It's like you've got to pay your taxes, you've got to sell. You may not have signed up to be a salesperson, but you did sign up to be a business owner. And if you don't sell, then you're not going to have a business. So there's a consequence to it. There's just a, an objective reality is you need to do it. So, so there's that as well. I think there's that. It's kind of that carrot and stick situation for me, but it starts with... I'm to use Alex's word. I'm picking the I'm not a salesperson because that was me. Then it's well, what is sales? And it's being aggressive. All right, well, don't do it aggressively. Do it authentically. Here's what you do because there is a mechanics to it. And then if you don't do it, you can't do what you love. Well, I'm, I'm very much liking this idea of changing the language patterns right at the start because if you're in a front-facing role of any type and you're saying. Do you like finding solutions to your clients' problems? 
one would hope that everyone would say, yes, yeah, I'm really attached to that. And I can think of people who may be very technically minded thinking, yes, I like help. Right. So if you like helping a client find a solution to their problem, or you can make it even more feeling, even more emotional. Do you like finding a solution that can heal a client's pain? Yes. Yes, I'd love to do that. Well, that's what the process of sales is. Is the thing that I have going to be the thing that transforms you, the client's existence, and your reality and your experience of that? Yes, well, then that's sales. I mean, is that something that you concur with, Alex? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, another client I've worked with him for three, maybe four years. When I first went in there, he was it. Two partners in the business, he was the biz dev guy. Uh, and he'd hired some really capable people to be account managers. Um, but he kept on coming back to, well, I don't know how to replicate me. So I'm like, okay, let's unpick that then. Because um, I don't have a process. I just go and talk to people and then they end up buying from us. So how do I replicate that? Um, so um, well, as you can imagine, actually, he does have a process. He's become unconsciously competent. So he thinks he's just having conversations, quite genuinely. And he's a genuinely interesting guy. So you drop him in the middle of a business and he'll just start asking questions. And out of that will be all sorts of ways that technology could make his business better, all sorts of ways that, you know, you could de-risk things, make it faster, more efficient, all of this kind of great stuff. Um, but he didn't know he was actually following an uncon unconsciously following a process. He had these patterns of language, these questions that he'd refined over 20 years in his career. And to him, it was, it was fun. It was intellectually interesting. It, whether, whether he had a thing to sell at the end of it or not didn't matter to him. He was just genuinely interested. But he, he built all this stuff up um, over years and years and years. And he didn't think it was, it was replicable. And actually, you kind of map it out and kind of go, no, no, here's what you're actually doing. This is your sales process. I just, I, sat, I, ride, I rode along with you and this is exactly what you did in this order. So do you think then, by taking that story and looking at this idea, natural born talent stops as being better, do you think it behoves everybody who's effortlessly good at something to at times stop, take a step back and try and unpick exactly what it is they do? Do you think that's worth doing? Because I'm sure there'll be other people saying, oh, but then I might just lose the flow. I might lose the sweet spot. What do you think? 100%. Uh, just, there's, it's, it's a healthy thing anyway, because uh, as human beings, we default to taking shortcuts. You know, you look at, if you look at uh, the green in the middle of Richmond, um, you know, you can see that people have taken shortcuts. They've knocked off the corners and they've just taken that path and everybody does it. And now it's become a real path. It was just a shortcut. Um, and as human beings, we inherently do that. So that's that sense of self-awareness to say, what, what do I actually do? Do I follow a process? What are my little kind of, I tend to ask this really cool question because it just opened things up. Um, actually having that self-awareness is, is a really, really positive thing, particularly when you're, you're trying to mentor, train, bring on other talent in a business. Um, and I think in some ways it, it really it really damages the idea of sales because I think sales is probably the last piece in business that's regarded as unprofessional. So marketing used to, marketing used to be people you will be gifted at marketing and now people are qualified at marketing. It is a profession. It is a career. Sales in business is, as a skill set is still not regarded really as a profession. You just happen to be good at it. Gift of the gab and a nice sharp suit and a BMW and away you go, mate. 
that's not the reality. It, it's a profession. It is a skill set. It's no different than being an accountant or being a leader. You can learn how to do this stuff and learn how to do it in a way that's not stressful or scary or aggressive. And on that, I, I, liked, I like to sort of, when people go, well, salespeople, it's, it's about lying and being aggressive and all that kind of stuff. And, uh, and, so, and I did this with a, with that, with a group of lawyers. I'm like, all right, cool. Are you telling me there are no aggressive lawyers? <laughs> or doctors? And they shut up <laughs> because, of course, there are. But for some reason, the brand of sales has the 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 one in however many has floated to the top. This is the stereotype has floated to the top. Ah, so it's it's that. Well, no, I mean, yeah, maybe sometimes. I'm not saying there's no dishonest salespeople. I've met a few in my time, but I've also met some really sincere, really professional people who, by the way, are the reason why everyone else can get their salaries. You know. So yeah, I I, I think I agree with you. Oh, I think that's a really, you know, for any of our listeners who does struggle with the concept of sales or actually doing it but feel they need to or want to be better at doing it, I think this is really hard, the idea. And I know we're going to come to the idea of the, the learnable aspect of it, but before we do, there is the second theme, the fascinating the iceberg illusion. Alex, tell us more. It's a lovely phrase, isn't it? That's um, correct. So it, it's it's a, a natural human fault Um all we see is the goal, you don't see the training. Um, so examples of this throughout history, uh, Mozart was a, a famed child prodigy. Um, he appeared, he was presented at court at the age of, I think, six, and could do all this really cool stuff. And everyone believed, my God, that's, that's just amazing. He's, you know, it's a God-given talent. No, 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 I called it that. Some biographers have written about it. They think he'd done about 3,500 hours of practice before he was six. And those practice, practices were done by his dad, who was a musician and composer, who specifically said, I'm going to make my son a brilliant musician from birth. Same as Tiger Woods' dad and all of that kind of good stuff. Um, so uh, I think the Malcolm Gladwell stuff ha has, a, ha has a, an impact on this as well. So as a rule of thumb, uh, good violinists have had focused professional training for about 4,000 hours. Great ones have uh, about 6,000 hours. Um, the ones who are godlike geniuses, that's where they go up to about the 10,000 hours, his, his default setting uh, across most, most fields. And definitely the Malcolm Gladwell stuff, uh, Matthew talks about in his book as well. So there's, he's definitely built on that, that premise uh, that goes much, more, much deeper into it. But the iceberg myth for me is this idea of all you see is somebody doing something really cool, but you don't see the journey they've been on to get to that point. And, and it's like, it's, it's the idea of, the idea of uh, if you're eight, saying you could win an Olympic gold medal, that's incredibly daunting. And it seems absolutely impossible. But actually, if you break that down into kind of chunks and goals and steps along the way, all of a sudden it, it becomes much easier to, much easier to consider. Oh, that's so interesting. I, I just done a testimonial. I have a, a client who came on uh, the program for HR directors that I'm working on at the moment, CEO Whispering. He said he'd do a testimonial for us. I gave him some questions. I said, well, consider these as some questions we might talk about. And he went away and he wrote out the answers to all these questions. And we did a rehearsal because, as we all know, as soon as you shine a video on somebody, they just get really uptight. But anyway, he, we, we did a rehearsal and he felt a bit stilted. 
but you know he, he did the rehearsal and then we said well let's go for a run and I'll ask you the questions and you just give me the answers and he did it and it was a bit more polished and I said okay now I'm going to ask you the questions take your take your answers away and just give it from the heart. And if you make a few stumbles, if it falls down a little bit, we find, oh, no, no, he says, I, I, I just don't feel comfortable doing that. I said, I think you can. I think you've got the muscle memory. But let's just have a practice. Let's just give it a go. So we did it. And, of course, it was fantastic. It was authentic because he really meant these words, but it came across as very natural and very organic from somebody who says, I'm not very natural, not very organic. He said, oh, that's brilliant. I said, Maybe I can do this. And I said, oh, you can. But you know it's actually the rehearsal and the contemplation and the planning that allowed you to look that effortless when you were riffing on it. And, you know, and I even think about this process as well. You know, this is our second series. And there's that sense of, well, you know, it's, it's feeling good. It's feeling comfortable now. We needed to do that first series. James and I, you know, listened back to our pilot episode. And, you know, it's slightly embarrassing and slightly cringy at times, but, of course, it has to be done in order to get there. And another uh, a good friend of, of ours, Rob DeCosta, has a great line, which is, done is better than perfect. And I think so many people put off doing things because they can only do it when it's perfect. You can only get it to perfect, close to perfect, by doing it and practising it. I mean, I, yeah, I mean, I prefer perfect is the enemy of done, because there is no perfect. Because on this call, there's three of us, and there'll be three definitions of perfect, which means that there's no one. And but it is, I mean, and by the way, it's spoken as a recovering perfectionist. And that was the big switch for me in coaching and sales and business ownership in life in general was it's not that me striving for perfect is getting in the way. And and particularly in sales. So someone who's trying to who wants to get better at sales, start, just start and do it badly. Because then you've already started. Uh, Matthew Syed himself is a, is a perfect example of that. If you if you think if you listen to his his story, think how many times he lost. So Matthew Matthew Syed was a table tennis champion. Um, so he was th- I think he was three times world champion. Um, but uh, he said he choked when he got to the Olympics. He was, went to the Olympics twice, but he said he choked because all the bright lights. Um, and it's this this amazing story of he talks about was I you know was it a god given gift that he had? Absolutely not. You know, so he had an older brother, which was a key factor. Um, where he lived, I think within two or three square miles of where he lived, um, there were more table tennis champions than pretty much anywhere else on the planet. Just and you think it's not just some weird genetic pool. There's a reason for that. So uh, he talks a lot about this in his book. So his parents, when he was about seven or eight, bought a full-size table tennis table, apropos of nothing. So he would relentlessly play his older brother, older, bigger, faster, stronger brother, every night, without fail, obsessively. Um, Down the end of the street, there was uh, a world-renowned table tennis club, literally just at the bottom of his street. Um, One of his PE teachers at school was a national coach at table tennis. And you follow this story all the way sort of through all of these kind of quirks. And his, his, his thought process was by the time coaches were talent spotting at, say, 11 or 12, he'd already done 8,000 odd hours of dedicated practice. So by the time the other kids had been playing, they picked up at 11, coaches were looking at them at 12. 
that trajectory is just enormous, that, or that weight of practice, and it appears indistinguishable from God-given talent. Um, but if you, the interesting thing for me is I sat there and think, look at that story, and I said, okay, how many times did he lose? He didn't win every match. How many times did he lose and keep going? And that, that, that was the real lesson for me, is not how many times he won, it's, it's, it's how much he practiced and how many, how many times he lost and kept going. Um, so the idea that he ever had the perfect match was a myth. You know, it just didn't. You know, he wasn't physically gifted anybody else. And there's a there's another another table tennis player which we spoke about the other day who uh, everyone believed had this amazing physical ability, but just wasn't the case. Um, but yeah, for me, there's lessons there's lessons in this. Through, you know, um, that sort of echoed through my life that you know you can do this stuff. You just got to find the way of doing it. And not worry about whether you can do it first go, second go, tenth go. I'm interested that Alex, that you, when you um, learned coaching skills, you'd already been in in sales and business development for 15 years. Yeah, so you'd had you'd had about a 15 year and a really successful career. So clearly, you were very good at the thing that you did. So what was it that interested you in learning a new discipline like coaching? Um, I think there's that mechanism, that discovery of the dyslexia at 31, 32. Um, all of a sudden, lots of things I looked at in a very different light. Um, you know, the fact of learning stuff, um, the fact that, um, you know, the taekwondo sort of stuff, actually, I got through that barrier. I just needed to learn things in a different way. Um, and I got utterly fascinated by, fascinated by that. And I, I knew lots of people who were involved in coaching or had coaching and the difference it made, you, Richard Gig, various other people. Uh, and I just sort of sat there and thought, actually, that looks really cool. If I'm going to do it, why don't I do it properly and get qualified? Um, which previously qualified courses, I'd run away from that. So it's quite a big mindset shift for you just to accept that there was a need for, for qualification. That's interesting. And, and James, I mean, again, someone who's very uh, proficient with sales, I mean, is there anything that you can think you going on to learn that is of interest to you? I mean, is there anything that you think about thinking, well, I know I'm good at X, but wouldn't it be interesting to explore why? Well, first, I mean, it's you maybe 10, 15 minutes ago said, oh, you two you, uh, are very talented at sales and, and I'm, I'm not, I have my doubts. I, I don't see myself as that. So I don't see myself as a sales professional. I see myself as someone who can sell. And as you were talking, I was thinking less about what I went on to do and what, okay, I'm good at this. Let me explore that. I was thinking about, and I've asked this of leaders a lot, is the incidental training is how I'd refer to it. Is there, There's probably the 4,000 hours there, but we're not, we don't look at it mindfully. So let's pick coaching because we all know how to do that. There will be incidental training through our childhoods, through our adolescence, through our early professional careers that we then, when we look back on it, when we get good at coaching, we go, oh, that, well, that's, yeah, I got good at connecting with people because. I, I got good at selling because. I got good at asking questions because. And so that's actually part of the training. But we just haven't, it's just, it's kind of in the background, but it's actually there. 
Um, and so that's part of what makes us great at that. And that's the same for leadership, at least the great kind of leadership that we celebrate on this show is connecting with other humans, doing it empathetically, being mindful, being reflective, being collaborative, all of these principles that we talk about. They didn't just get the job and then learn that stuff. It was they had been doing it for decades, but no one came, no one, they didn't think to connect the dots. And so part of what I think is powerful with any of this stuff that's that's like so it doesn't always work like accountancy. <laughs> you need to, need to get those skills. You don't have those skills before. You might have some of it, but not you need that. But with with the more, I don't know, the human interaction stuff we all had training before we went on the training. And so as you were talking, I was thinking about that because I think we all have a version of, of Matthew Syed's 10,000 or 4,000 hours before he met the coach in leadership. I didn't answer your question, but I felt that felt relevant. I think there's, uh, for me, so I built uh, a really quick and dirty uh, nine box model to, to benchmark someone's commercial function within a business. So not just the bit where somebody says something cool and they sign on the bit, bit of paper, all the things to do with revenue generation, marketing all the way through. So I wanted a nice, a nice simple model just, just for me so I could benchmark law firms and tech firms and all that kind of stuff. And there's a bit that I, I found out off the back of that, which is that combination of uh, mindset, skills, and process is the key to unlocking it. Because if you just give somebody the skills... Uh, so if I tell you a price for something and it comes with a free apology, I'm really sorry, but that's going to be a thousand pounds. I've given you the language, but the way that's delivered, you're literally telling somebody, I think this is really expensive. You probably ought to shop around. Um, so the combination of mindset skills and process, so the process stuff is what makes it normal, what makes it default rather than somebody consciously having to go, right, I'm at this stage in the meeting and now I need to say this thing. You actually can make this thing sit throughout the whole business so it becomes end to end rather than a thing that one person does when they remember. Um, and I think you need that combination of all three, otherwise it won't feel natural. I think that takes us beautifully into the third thing, which is sales can be fun and it can be learned. So mindset, skills, process, that's essentially what you're saying should be learned around sales or is there anything more to it i think i think and that's a, that's a mix of uh it can be learned it, it can be practiced uh and uh it's a thing that you should be mindful of within a business so sales is isn't isn't as simple as follow this six-step process when you're having a conversation with a client you then look at what comes before and after that and you look at that whole journey that a client will go through through a firm, end to end. When was the last time businesses actually genuinely sit back and kind of go, actually, what does that look and feel like? And then you find out that actually, you stop marketing to your clients the moment they bought the one thing from you. You just leave them for dead at that point because you assume that they'll come back and buy more. And you kind of go, well, why, why would you do that? <laughs> you know, why wouldn't you then build on that relationship and help them more? Um, you look at, uh, I've had, and I've, I've seen it elsewhere, great sales skills in a business, but the lack of that end-to-end -end visibility and that end-to-end -end mindfulness meant that nobody thought about who was opening the inquiry's email address, where there were loads of leads sitting there going and responded to. 
So it, it, it's more than just as simple as that 10, 15 minute conversation that you have with a client. Um, it needs that you need to look at that, have that mindfulness to look at that overall journey that a client will go through from marketing, through sales, into account management, into service management, into cross-selling, into pricing. All of this stuff needs to be looked at holistically, as much as it's a horrible, horrible word. Which, which is analogous to what we were saying earlier about, you know, it is always worth, even if you're good at something, to step back and analyse and pull apart what makes you good at it. Because, A, you can teach other people, but also you might find within that process, presumably, you can improve, you can get better. And it's that where the coaching really, really, really makes a massive difference is that I've been around lawyers a lot. I used to be part of the Law Society's consulting team in a, in a previous life, um, but I'm not a lawyer. Even, even if I was a lawyer, I, 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 you know, even if I had a background in residential conveyancing, I wouldn't, I wouldn't really know the depth on commercial, and I wouldn't really know the depths on M and A, and I wouldn't really know the depths of stuff on, on litigation. So therefore, you look at that world and kind of go. So how can I help them if I haven't done it? How can I be Alex Ferguson if I didn't win, you know, the FA Cup? Well, actually, they're different skill sets. And part of that skill set is coaching. Part of that skill set is helping a business become mindful of all of this stuff and helping them to actually create what, what realize where they are today and design something that works for them using their expertise, not mine. So I, I tend to, so, so it's that bit where kind of, Training can open the door, mentoring will help them make it stick and help them make it apply it, and then coaching will be the bit that actually changes something permanently, and you get that incredible kind of trigger moment. As coaches, we all love where someone goes, oh, it's that, that's the thing, <laughs> um, and that unlocks all of this stuff, and it then takes it up to the next level. But I think it, it's, it, it shouldn't be just viewed as – I'm going to teach you how to teach you this one cool little phrase to say over the phone to somebody. It's a much broader piece than that. And that I think is the bit that makes it fun. It, it's not reliant on a single point. It's not reliant on you saying, can I have your business now at the end of a call? It's too, too late by that point. Looking at it holistically is actually really entertaining. What else could you do to make this client feel good as they're going through that, that journey? So if they're going through your, these HR directors that you're working with, What's that whole journey look like for them? How did that, what was the starting point before they Googled your kind of stuff? What difference could you make after they've been through, through, the, through the business? What else, what, what else do they need? How else can you support? If you look at that end to end, it's a much more entertaining process than just tricking somebody into saying yes. It's far, far deeper than that. Yes, yeah, that's really fascinating. Really. And again, as someone who sells, I'm thinking about this and thinking, yes, have I really considered the end-to-end -end journey that all my clients have or the end-to-end -end journey I want to offer? And as you said, even before and after, what happens to the before and after piece? Um, James, as, as someone else who sells, what makes it fun for you? Well, and, and how would you educate someone else to see it as fun rather than daunting? Um, I, so I have a slightly different opinion because I think it's not always fun and that's okay. Um, I think it's fun. I think that getting the new client is fun. I think looking after the client is fun, but I think the early work, so there's that saying, um, there's no crowds lining the extra mile. Um, I think there's no crowds lining the first mile in sales. It's the getting of the lead 
that's not fun. <laughs> that's not, it's not fun going to networking. It's not, it's for sure not fun cold calling. It's not fun being ignored, but that's necessary. You've got to do it because as we all know, you don't get 10 leads and 10 clients. You get 10 leads and two clients or whatever, if you're really good. So that's not fun. And I think if we, if we were to say that, it makes it, it makes it easy to give up. But the fun bit is when you get good at it is when you go, okay, now I, now I can do it as me. Now I can do it authentically. Now I can roll with a different situation. Now I can spot the opportunities. Now I can know that I can help this person. I think the fun bit is not selling the first one or the second one or the third one, but the fourth one. I go, oh, yeah, no, I've got you. I know. And I, and I really know. It's when you can say to a client, I definitely can help you, and here's how confident I am. And not being um, arrogant about it, but I just know that I'm good at this because you've done it before. That's the fun bit. The fun bit comes later. The, 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 you've got to do the not fun bit before you get to the fun bit is how I would say it. But I think, but I, and people who are going to, who are at the start of this, are just going to have to take it on faith from someone that they don't really know. Um, it will get fun. Um, but driving isn't fun at the beginning, but it's fun afterwards. But you've got to go through that. And this is and the Seth Godin, is it Seth Godin? Yeah, the, the dip about wh whether you should tactically give up or not. That dip is big, particularly in sales. That dip is big. But if you get through to the other side, then it's really fun. Because then you're invincible. Because if you can sell, you are. You're invin if you can sell, you always will have a career. I think that is such a truism. If you can sell, you'll always have a career. But I like that point, which I think links back to the iceberg illusion, doesn't it? That actually the, the steps before you get to the fun part are all the training and the practice that Matthew Saeed and any sports person and any of us in training to become better salespeople needs to do. And I, and I think, you know, thinking back to your previous business, Alex, it's about lead generation. It's about marketing. How do you get the leads into the funnel so you can even have the conversation? And that's something that I've been doing in the last sort of six months building this new business is building the marketing funnel. And I've never done it before. I've never done it properly. And I've always wanted to do it properly. But by the book, how do you create the structures? And you're right, James, often it hasn't been fun. But it's been, for want of a better word, virtuous. And I think I haven't, it hasn't been fun, but I've taken pleasure in the fact that it's virtuous. And I have done it from moving back to being consciously incompetent and hopefully being consciously competent and start creating sales in a more structured, development, developed way, which I link back to your first theme, Alex, which is if you just think you're great at something, you're not going to pay attention to all the other things that could actually have a great deal of value and, and fun in them. So I suppose if we were to sort of summarise the book now for anybody in business, what would be the, you know, in a couple of lines, Alex, why you feel somebody in business really should read this book? A couple of lines, a couple of hours. Um, <laughs> I think, you know, sales is uh is not a is not a gift it's not a thing that you are born with um it is something that a a business needs to be mindful of um and uh it is a thing that can transform your organization you know i think e even in sales teams i've seen 
very few actual salespeople. I've seen people that can take an order and sit in a room and press next on a, on a PowerPoint, but not, I wouldn't describe them as professional salespeople. So imagine, imagine what, what an entire business would look like if it was full of people that had sales capability. What would that look like? And, and it's entirely possible. And this, this book for me unlocked this idea that, you know, unless you were born with the ability to do, you can't do it. Both for me, because there was a bunch of stuff that I couldn't do, um, and the stuff that I could do and others couldn't. I looked at it and thought, well, actually, yeah, I, I can help people do that. And what difference does that make? Yeah, it's huge. So that, that idea that actually we're not, we're not handcuffed to what we were born with. And I, and I think for people, anybody listening to this who has a desire to be better, I think that's a really enlightening and enlivening message because, and it is even for me, Alex, I've always seen you as someone who is effortlessly brilliant at sales. So if you're saying, <laughs> and you should say you're brilliant because you are brilliant, but say, no, it's not effortless. I have put plenty of effort into this. Any degree of natural talent I have, I have built on it. And I think similarly for you, James, uh, there's, you, there are things I think you are effortlessly brilliant at, but I also know how hard you work. And I think it's in the, the work ethic is perhaps where the, the, where the virtue is. We can mm. admire people who have an effortless brilliance, but the effort they put in, that's where, the, that's where the virtue is. And I think that's really laudable and respectable. So third bounce. Alex, very quickly, why third bounce? <laughs> um, so oddly enough, there were, there were two books that had the word bounce in the title. Um, this was one of them that really resonated with me. Um, so this passion for commerciality, passion for sales in professional services and tech. And I just sat there and thought, yeah, I, I really like that, that taking that message out there that this is a thing that people can learn how to do. Um, so that, that, that was definitely in there for me. Um, there's another book called Second Bounce, which is by one of the guys who founded Apex Partners, one of the first proper big venture capitalist firms. And he was he, the theme of that, possibly one for another day, is um, most people in business and in that world bet on what's cool today. His method was always to go, well, what comes after what's cool today? What's the next bounce of that ball? Because by the time you've made an investment, the next thing will be now, and then then you can ride that wave onwards. Um, so all of these things kind of um, came together. You know, the second bounce thing, Matthew side bounce, um, and yeah, the third bounce, the idea that businesses should look at more than one level of this stuff. You shouldn't just look at, well, is marketing giving us leads? That's level one. What comes after that? Well, what are you doing with the leads? Right, okay, so what are you doing once you've won these clients? And you kind of look at all of these bounces of the ball and all of a sudden the sum of all of those gains is, is just huge. Um, and that's something I'm really passionate about. Perfect. So th thirdbounce.com? Uh, yes. Uh, uh, I think we're both. We're .com and .co.uk. Okay. So so to check Alex out more, thirdbounce.com, thirdbounce.co.uk. Also, he's on LinkedIn as well. So do look him up plenty of fascinating things that you'll find there as i'm sure you found out through just listening to this episode with alex alex thank you so much for doing this really appreciate that pleasure thank you mate thank you for having me always our pleasure and james and i will see you for another episode in about a month's time stay tuned